Well, I want to tell you about somebody else this morning. Dr. John Chang was a 52-year-old sports medicine doctor in Southern California. He was regarded as a, a very humble man. His patients said that he was a good listener. And in fact, he was available to them on the weekends by text if they had problems that they wanted to connect with their doctor about. He loved teen sports, and he supported many sports teams for young athletes. He served as a team doctor. He was a really Christ-like person. He was a follower of Jesus. And last Sunday, he was in the Presbyterian Church in Laguna Woods with his mother when a shooter entered. When we were here, that's what was going on last Sunday in Laguna Woods. This, this man came into the church posing as an, a maintenance man. He chained up the outside doors of the church and super glued the locks shut and then opened fire on the predominantly elderly congregation. That's when Dr. Chang decided to sacrifice his own life to stop the bloodshed. He was trained as a black belt in karate, and so he tackled the gunmen from behind, and he was shot and killed in the process. One news reporter observed this. He said, he sacrificed himself so that others could live. The irony in a church is not lost on me. You know, last week, Pastor Adam challenged us to consider how much we are loved by God. If you were here last week, you remember that Pastor Adam was really challenging us to think about how much we are loved. It's astounding that Jesus sacrificed his life for us when he went to the cross to pay the death that we deserve for the penalty of our sins. And he did that so that we could live, so that we could be forgiven and set free and receive his grace and forgiveness. And as we looked at Romans 5 last week, you might remember that Paul pointed out, he said, you know, yes, it's reasonable that maybe someone would sacrifice their life for a friend. You know, certainly I think, absolutely, I would put myself in front of a bus to save either of my sons or my husband or, or a beloved family member. But Paul was challenging us and he's saying, but who would put, who would sacrifice themselves for a stranger or for an enemy or for someone who is angry and rebellious against you? And yet Jesus did, Jesus died while we were yet still sinners, when we were in a relationship of enmity against God. And Dr. Chang honored Jesus's example and his willingness to sacrifice his life in that moment so that his mother and others in that congregation could live. That's where we've been. And then today we're going to continue in Romans 5. We're in our series called The Beautiful Disruption. And today we are going to read the most difficult passage in all the book of Romans, in fact, scholars agree that this is the greatest theological section of the entire New Testament, but it's also one of the most challenging passages to follow along with Paul's train of thought. So I am thrilled with the opportunity this morning to help you wrap, we're going to wrap our minds around this text, and we're going to just trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and minds to the truth that God's grace triumphs over all of our sin. Yes. So, 
Will you please open your Bibles and ushers, would you come forward? Please raise your hand if you do not have a Bible in front of you. This is one of those mornings when putting your eyes on the full breadth of the text is super important. And I'm beginning, I'm going to start by reading this passage. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign throughout through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I've broken this passage into three parts so that we can more easily wrap our mind around what Paul is saying. First, we're going to look at our ruin in Christ, verses 12 through 14. Then we're going to look at our rescue, I'm sorry, our ruin is in Adam, verses 12 through 14. Our rescue is in Christ, in verses 15 through 19, and then our reign and glory, verses 20 through 21. But most importantly, I'm praying that we will just ingest the most glorious truth of this passage. And this truth is like the true joy of our salvation, and it is that God's grace triumphs over our deepest sin. God's grace triumphs over all our sin. That's the amazing truth. So let me pray that God will open our hearts and minds this morning. Father, we come before you today and we need your help. We need your help to wrap our minds around Paul's brilliant argument, his deep insight. And also, Lord, we need, our, we need your grace, we need your, your spirit to open our hearts to hear from you. We need to hear from you this morning. Lord, I pray even now that you would tender our hearts right now to hear your spirit speaking to us through these words, through my message. Would you choose the words for me to speak? And would you help us to hear only the things that you have for us to hear? We ask that you come mightily, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it's helpful for this passage if you open your Bibles and you look at the full text. And you even might want to underline a few things this morning that will help bring things a little bit clearer. 
Because one of the things that makes this passage so confusing is that Paul begins his thought in verse 12, and then he goes off into a parenthesis in verses 13 and 14, and then he goes off into another parenthesis in verses 15 through 17, and then he finishes his thought in verse 18. So let's do this. Let's look at verse 12 and verse 18 together so we get a more concise view of his whole thinking. So verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In other words, Paul's telling us that there are two great acts in history. There's the act of Adam, which brought condemnation and death into the world. And there's the act of Jesus Christ, which brought justification and life into the world. So Paul is contrasting these two men. He's contrasting Adam and Jesus. He's saying death and sin came through Adam and life and forgiveness came through Jesus. But in each case, our entire existence has been altered by a single man, either Adam or Jesus. So Paul begins this argument in verse 12 with two indisputable truths. He's saying, everyone sins and everyone dies. Let's look at this verse again. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is universal. Whether we call it sin or not, everyone sins. We are born with a sinful nature. And we begin to see evidence of sin in little children, children who hoard toys, who hit their siblings, who have temper tantrums. We see evidence of sin. They say that if sin were the color blue, every aspect of our, of our being would be some shade of blue. Paul actually said it really succinctly in Romans 3.23 when he said, everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the other universal truth is that everyone dies. Everyone dies. Some babies even die before they've had a chance to do or say anything sinful. So the reason we die is not because of our individual sins, although some people do hasten their death based on choices that they make, but that's not why people die. People, mankind dies because of Adam's original sin in the Garden of Eden. Paul said it succinctly in Romans 6.23 when he said, the wages of sin is death. The Bible actually provides the only explanation between this relationship between sin and death. Now, secular thinkers will think, they won't call sin, sin, but they will agree that people aren't perfect. Nobody is perfect. And they will agree that every living organism dies. These are just undeniable realities about life on planet Earth. But only the Bible informs us that death is the result of sin. And only the Bible tells us how sin originated, where it originated, and how it entered into the human race. And so now Paul is explaining to us that sin entered humanity through one man, through Adam. And along with Adam's sin came death into all of mankind. Now you might be thinking, that's not fair, (laughs) right? Why do I have to live with the ramifications of Adam's choice? 
You might be thinking, why did Adam's sin have to affect us? Well, God made Adam an ambassador for all mankind. Just like a political ambassador represents his or her country, God appointed Adam the first created human being to be the ambassador for all humanity. So Adam represented all of mankind when he was faced with a decision to either obey or disobey God's word. We got to go back to the beginning, to Genesis, to recall what exactly happened. Turn back to Genesis chapter 2, if you will. Genesis, first book of the Bible. We go back to creation history. In the book of Genesis, we learn that God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, that God breathed life into Adam. Adam was the first created human being, and he was made sinless. He was completely without sin. He was made in the image of God, and he was given full reign over this beautiful garden. He could move and live and breathe and enjoy all that God had created him to enjoy. He had complete freedom, and he had freedom to choose between obeying or disobeying God's word. He and his wife, Eve, were naked and unashamed. We know, we have to assume it was 72 and sunny every day in paradise. (laughs) They lived in perfect harmony with God until they chose to violate God's instruction. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And in his act of rebellion, Adam chose to eat from the tree that Eve offered to him. And in that moment, he chose to be wise in his own eyes. He chose to enthrone himself as God in place of the one true God. He basically chose evil over good. And as a result of his choice, a sin nature became a part of every human being who's been born thereafter. So Adam, Eve, all of his children, all of their children, every descendant of Adam is now destined to die and the body returns to dust. But this death is much more than just a physical death because In Genesis 3.15, God also explained how this death would extend into life. We talk about how we live in a broken world. God knew that this death would extend into the life that we live. For example, tending the garden would now be drudgery for Adam. The soil would be hard. It would be hard to till. Childbirth would now be mixed with, with joy and agony. Marriage would now become a power struggle between husband and wife. And worst of all, people would now be born estranged from a relationship with God. And apart from God's divine intervention in that, in that he promised in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to bring a savior, he was going to bring a Messiah, apart from that promise, people would remain estranged from God forever, eternally separated from him. So was it fair, do you think, for God to condemn the whole world on the basis of one man's sin? Was that fair? You know what? Sadly, if you and I were in Adam's spot, we would have made the same choice. Because every time today that we sin, 
Every time that we doubt God's goodness, every time that we choose our own wisdom over his, every time that we raise a rebellious fist against God, every time that we do go our own way, we actually ratify Adam's choice. Romans 1.20 says that we are without excuse because we too are disobedient to God. But Paul is, God, but God is so brilliant, and Paul points this out. God is so brilliant because by condemning the whole human race through one man, Adam, God could then save the whole of mankind through one man, Jesus. Brilliant. Let's go on to verse 13. For sin indeed, he says, was in the world before the law was given But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we know that sin is in our DNA. We know. Ever since Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we know that we are affected by sin. And the reason we, the proof for that is of sin's destructive presence in the fact that Every person dies. Every one of Adam's descendants died. In fact, if we look at Genesis 5, uh, we have the whole list of each of Adam's immediate descendants and how long they lived, and the repeating phrase is, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. But if God didn't define his holy standards until he gave the law, which was the Ten Commandments that he gave to Moses, if he didn't define, if he didn't to say what his holy standards were until he gave the law, which was 2,500 years later, how could there still be sin in the world? Because it's only through breaking of a law that sin is actually defined. In other words, without a law to break, can we really be accused of sinning? I've lived in this community for 34 years, and I like to to cruise down Boone's Ferry on my way to I-5. And I've always just kind of been able to cruise from the stoplight at the post office at Lake Grove straight through to the stoplight on the corner of Albertsons. It's a nice long block to cruise through. But guess what? We have a new stoplight now in front of McDonald's. We have several new stoplights. Now, if I ignore that red light and I cruise straight through like I've always done in the past, I will be breaking a law. I might get a ticket. I might cause an accident. I never had to stop there before, and there was no violation before for driving straight through, but now that that light is in place, if I continue doing the thing I've always done, I will break a law and incur a penalty, and I will be sinning. But Paul's point is that before the law, we know there was sin in the world. We know there was evil in the world before God gave the law to Moses, The proof that there was sin in the world is this death record. People died. That's the proof that there was sin in the world. But we also know from reading the book of Genesis that there was terrible sin in the world. Remember the time of Noah? How wretched life was on earth in the time of Noah or the time of Sodom and Gomorrah? By the way, ladies, I'm so excited to study Genesis with you next fall. We're going to take a deep dive into this amazing part of Scripture. The Bible records how the ripple effects of Adam's original sin had ramifications in the world for generations to follow. 
So Paul's conclusion is that people die because of the consequences of Adam's original sin. And in Adam, sin and death spread to all men. How does sin spread? Has anybody heard about the honey mushroom? The honey mushroom in Oregon's Malheur National Forest, they call it a humongous fungus that has spread through the tree roots over 2,200 acres, basically three to four square miles. It's the largest living organism ever found. They said it weighs about 34 tons. The popular name for it is called the honey mushroom, and it started as a single microscopic spore, but then began to weave black shoestring filaments under the ground through the forest. It's been weaving these filaments for, they say, 2,400 years, and it kills trees as it grows. Tina Dressbach, who's with the U.S. Forest Service in Corvallis, she says when you're on the ground, you don't notice the pattern. You just see these dead trees in clusters. But then digging into the roots of an affected tree, researchers find something that looks like white latex paint. These are mats of mycelium which draw water and carbohydrates from the tree to feed the fungus, and they interfere with the tree's absorption of nutrients. So these shoestring filaments, which are called rhizomorphs, stretch as much as 10 feet into the soil, invading the tree, tree roots through a combination of pressure and enzyme action. So like this gigantic mushroom, sin began as a single act of disobedience and has spread through the entire human race. And we are all united to Adam. And so when Adam broke the command in the Garden of Eden, we all broke it with him. Death is a wage of sin. Death is the wage of sin. Paul says it in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Now, we don't like to talk about death. We don't like to talk about it. Death actually is something I despise. My husband tells me, don't say you hate something. I hate death. I hate it. I spend much of my life trying to keep people alive, either physically or spiritually. And so death is the, the ultimate ripping apart of that which is good. And it, it rips my heart apart when someone I love dies, even when I lose one of my beloved golden retrievers. It's devastating. And yes, I know I'm grateful for the hope of heaven. I'm grateful that I know that I'll be reunited with the people that I love who have loved the Lord. But in the meantime, I still feel that sting of separation when somebody that I love dies, leaves this world. We live, though, in a, in a death-denying culture. We live in a culture that emphasizes youthfulness and productivity and vitality of life. We live in a culture where a person's worth is very closely associated with their contribution to society. You know, whether consciously or unconsciously, death is something that most people fear. Most people are trying to avoid it. And our society actually treats death like an enemy that can be overcome. It can be overcome through the right diet or through the right exercise program or through the right cocktail of vitamins and supplements or through the right body-enhancing surgeries. But the reality is that we still age and we still die. But believers in Jesus Christ live in a death-defying culture. 
Because the Bible explains that, that for a person who is in Christ, when the body goes to dust, the soul of a person goes from life to life. Life in the body to life in the presence of God. That we don't see death. And Paul exhibited this kind of death-defying attitude when he wrote 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 56. He said, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity has the only explanation for the universal reign of death, and it has the only solution for it. So let me ask you, how do you view death? When you think of death, how do you view it? Do you, is it something that you're afraid to think about? Or is it a mystery that you don't want to face until the time comes? I took a seminary class with my friend Josh Ray, and we took this class together where one of the things that we discussed in this class was the, the blessing of being a believer who can actually talk about death and think about death and prepare for death with our family members in advance, that we don't have to be afraid of it. We don't have to be superstitious about even having the conversation or full of trepidation and fear. We actually, the blessing of being a believer is that we can prepare. And one of the ways we prepare is how we choose to live today, not only in how we face those days when that day comes. We can resist being caught up in the mindset of a death-denying culture because we belong to a death-defying culture in Jesus Christ. Yeah. So Paul knows that we first have to face the problem of sin and the in inevitability of our physical death before we'll embrace the forgiveness and eternal life that Christ offers us by grace. So next he goes on to explain our rescue in Christ. If you look back at verse 14, you'll notice that Paul begins this parallel between, between Adam and Christ at the end of verse 14 when he says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And we might think, wait, how could sinful Adam be a type in any way of the sinless son of God. But there are actually three ways in which we see a parallel, some similarities. So the first is that Adam represented all humanity. Both of these men represented all humanity. Adam represented all humanity. Jesus was God's representative to accomplish salvation for all mankind. Both of these men represented others. The second thing is that both men were morally unpolluted when they were tempted by evil. So Adam was without sin in the garden when he was tempted by evil. He was literally sinless. He was morally pure. Jesus also was sinless in his divine nature, morally pure when he was tempted by evil in the wilderness. No one else can say that they were morally pure or sinless when they were tempted by evil, but Adam and Jesus were. And the third thing is that both of these men passed on their response to temptation to other people. So the effect of Adam's disobedience was sin, condemnation, and death that's been passed on to all of us. The response of Jesus's obedience 
is righteousness, justification, eternal life that's been passed on to all who believe. But now the rest of the chapter, Paul is actually going to show us the contrast between these two men. Because there are far more contrasts than there are similarities. There are three key differences. The first is this difference between the free gift and the trespass. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. The sin of Adam brought us death. The free gift of Christ brings us abundant life. And notice how both of these activities occurred in gardens. For Adam, in the Garden of Eden, he disobeyed God and introduced sin into the world. For Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he wrestled and he had victory to go to the cross and bring forgiveness and triumph over sin and evil. The second distinction that Paul makes is between condemnation and justification. He says in verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. So the effect of Adam's sin is condemnation and death once and for all. Condemnation means to be judged or to be declared wrong. And the effect of Christ's obedience is justification for a multitude of sins. Justification is a word that means to be declared righteous by God. So though we are sinners by nature because of our association with Adam, we are declared righteous and justified when we receive Christ. No, many, no matter how many times we've sinned, God's forgiveness is greater than our deepest sin. Amen. Aren't we grateful? And then the third difference is between this reign of life and reign of death. So verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we know that death began reigning on the earth through Adam, but Christ's death on the cross actually gives us much more than we lost in Adam. This is so astounding. Jesus gives us abundant grace. In other words, Christ's work for dying for our sins doesn't just restore us to the same position Adam had before the fall. We instead receive an abundant provision of grace in that we actually reign with Adam. I want to share this quote from a famous theologian with you because it makes so much sense. He says, it's not that we are forgiven, but over and above being forgiven, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is put into our account. Unfallen Adam was righteous, but it was his own righteousness as a created being. It was the righteousness of Adam. Adam never had the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon him. What he lost was his own righteousness. But you and I are not merely given back a human righteousness, the righteousness that Adam had before he fell. We are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ much more abundance, superabundance. We receive this abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. We reign in life with Christ. But did you notice that Paul said we have to receive this gift? We have to receive this gift in order to reign in righteousness with Christ. Jesus offers it to us by faith, but we actually have to receive it. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a gift that has to be received. Paul then continues his argument contrasting the one trespass with the one act of obedience in verse 18. We've all been down, now you've known all the parentheses and now we're back to the main thought again. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous. Our righteousness before God is a beautiful picture of our new identity in Christ. Because of the forgiveness that we receive for our sins in Christ, we actually can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. We're welcomed into God's presence. We are, we are robed with the righteousness of Christ. We're justified, and that word justified, we've seen that word over and over again in Romans. We've been talking about justified. What does it mean? And, and sometimes we kind of um, cleverly think of justified as just as if I've never sinned. You've heard that? It's kind of a clever way that we think of what justified means, but I don't think that word captures the full measure of the meaning because sin is still part of our nature. We will continue to sin until the day we see Jesus face to face. So I like to imagine it this way. Imagine that you're standing in the presence of God and you are wearing filthy rags, filthy, torn, disheveled, dirty clothes, and you are not able to come near the presence of God because of what you're wearing. You're filthy in your sin. And then Jesus comes over and he takes off his beautiful, I think it's red velvet robe in my mind, and he wraps it around your shoulders. And then when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your filthy rags, though they're still underneath the righteous robe, but he looks at you and he welcomes you to come into his presence because he sees you now not in your filth. He sees you in the righteousness of Christ and he welcomes you to, to come near and you're accepted and you're loved and you're cherished as a son or daughter because you're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. But this righteousness is not just about our right standing with God. It's not just about our position. It's actually about this life, this vitality, this amazing eternal life that we get to live right now before we are joined with him after death. It's this life living with Christ where we get to walk with him by faith every day. He is with us. He is guiding us. He is present with us. It's a life where we have peace in our souls, a peace that passes all understanding. We don't even, we don't, can't even comprehend, but we know that we're at peace with God and that peace fills our hearts. It's the sense of never being alone because he says, I am with you always until the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. It's having the, the truth and wisdom and guidance of his word, which lights the path for us, gives us a way forward leads us through this broken world. It's this freedom from guilt and shame where there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are free. The sins are behind his back as far as the east is from the west. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us eyes to notice God at work all around us. We have this ability to connect the dots and we see that God is present and he is here. 
It's the ability to talk to him in prayer, to know that we're invited to, to spill it all out and to know that he engages with us and he listens and he moves and answers our prayers in phenomenal ways. It's a new perspective on sin where in the past, sin used to be something that we delighted in. It was our, it was our entitlement. It was our rebellion. And now sin is something that is so distasteful that we just want to spit it out like it's bitter because we know that sin actually brings death into our lives. It is a heart for the things that God loves and the people that God loves. It is the miracle of having broken relationships redeemed by his love. It is hope for the future. Though the world is a mess and we don't know what's going to happen next, we have hope it's placed in Jesus Christ and our eternal life with him. It's a desire to share the gospel with people who don't know him. And it is the joy of fellowshipping as believers and worshiping him in his greatest gift on earth, which is his church. Yeah. This is living in this righteousness with Christ. It's amazing. It's a gift. But we, the choice is ours. Will we choose to live in death in Adam? Or will we choose to live in life with Christ? He offers us the gift, but we have to receive it. The sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross has unleashed an avalanche of love and grace and forgiveness that covers all the sin and death that Adam caused. And God's grace and forgiveness is greater than our deepest sin. But we have to choose to receive this gift. We have to accept the pardon for our sin that he is offering us. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, there was a postal clerk named George Wilson. And he robbed a payroll, federal payroll um, train. And he actually killed one of the guards. And so he was sentenced to hang for his crime. But the people at that time did not like capital punishment. And so they rallied to President Jackson to get a pardon for George Wilson. It was his first offense. And they did it. They secured a pardon for him. A presidential pardon. But amazingly, Wilson refused it. He didn't want it. And since this had never happened before, the Supreme Court had to rule on whether someone could actually indeed refuse a presidential pardon. So Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision and he said this, he said, a pardon is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives it. George Wilson had refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has, and therefore George Wilson must die. And he did. He was hung. So the Supreme Court declared that though a pardon can be granted, it has to be accepted. Have you accepted the pardon that Jesus is offering you? Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Well, let's go on because Paul's going to wrap up this chapter by contrasting the law with grace. He says in verse 20, now the sin has come in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay. So if the law can't justify us because we can't do anything to be saved, and if the law can't condemn us because we're already condemned in our association with Adam, then what does the law do? Three things as we close I'm going to share with you about the law. 
First of all, the law tells us what sin is, right? Without the law, we don't know, though we might suspect, that stealing, coveting, adultery, murder are wrong. Jesus summarized the law when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So anything that we do that violates our love for God and our love for others is a breaking of the law. But the law tells us that so that we know. The second thing is that the law reveals the nature of sin, which is rebellion. We tend to want to do the things that we've been told not to do, right? We know that through the Portland metropolitan area on I-5, the speed limit is 55. We see the sign posted, and what's the first thing we do? We think, I wonder how fast I could go before I get pulled over. For me, it's about nine miles. I always feel I'm safe within nine miles over the speed limit. <laughs> 10 miles, I think I might get in trouble. But we calculate, okay, how fast can I really go? And then we kind of look around, are there any policemen around? And then we look in the fast lane, how fast are people going? And then we finally justify, oh yeah, I'm doing with the flow of traffic, 70, 75, what does it matter? <laughs> You see, the law actually makes us want to sin more. We want to sin more. We want to decide for ourselves what we want to do rather than comply with something that someone else has told us to do. And then the third thing is that the law exposes sin's power. So why do we do the things we shouldn't do and don't do the things we should do? Why do behaviors and substances and thought patterns become strongholds in our lives? It's because sin is powerful. And our rebellious response just further confirms our powerlessness over sin apart from a relationship with Jesus. So the law reveals how our sin is an offense to God. So to put it simply, God reveals his holy standards through the law. Immediately we become aware of our failure to comply. And in fact, we choose to sin all the more because we rationalize all the more why we should just do things our own way. We're then proving that we're powerless to stop sinning, and as a result, our sin increases by God. But God is ready to meet us with his grace, because as our sin increases, his grace increases all the more. And in fact, the primary purpose of the law is to reveal our desperate need for God's grace. We are desperately in need of God's grace, which is freely given to us through Christ by faith. What is grace? It's just simply God's love and favor to undeserving people. None of us deserve God's grace. We can't do anything to get it. We can't earn it. If we earn it, it's not grace. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. God's grace is greater than your deepest sin. God's grace is greater than yours deepest sin and mine. Sometimes I think we have to realize there is nothing that we can say. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can think that his grace can't meet us with love and forgiveness. And sometimes I think when we begin to reflect on our own life and we begin to reflect on our own sin and we begin to think about it in light of God's grace, something in our minds begins to parse out which of our sins are more forgivable than others. We begin to weigh them. You know, we begin to say, well, this sin, I think God could really forgive, but this one is really, like, I'm gonna, this is going to take a lot for God to forgive me on this. 
Some of our sins actually may have caused the death of another person or the death of a relationship. Some of our sins might have stolen the innocence of a person's or caused betrayal, caused distrust, caused poor health, created financial ruin, had to do with infidelity. I want you to think for just a moment, what is your deepest sin? My guess is that it comes to your mind pretty quickly. Because though God might place our sins behind his back, we carry them right here. We know what we think is our most weighted sin. And in the depths of your soul, are you holding on to something that you deem unforgivable? Are you carrying the burden of guilt and shame about something that you haven't really received forgiveness for. Because this morning, as, as we go to the table, you're gonna be, we're going to be holding, you're going to grab these elements, the bread and the cup, and you're going to be holding these in your hand. And the bread symbolizes the body of Christ who died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins He died on the cross for the forgiveness of our worst possible sin. And the cup represents his blood, the blood of the new covenant that was shed for all of our sins, past, present, and future. If you are in Christ, your life is covered by his grace. And so I want to challenge you when you go to the table to really believe it this morning to really believe that God's grace triumphs over all of your sin, your deepest sin, your lightest sin, all of your sin, his grace meets you. And I want to ask you to just take your time and to really contemplate, is there a sin in your heart that you're still holding on to? You still haven't released to him and embraced the forgiveness of the cross. And if you're struggling to believe this morning, If you're really struggling to believe that that what Jesus did on the cross was for you and that it does cover, his grace covers your deepest sin, I want to ask you to pray that God will help you in your unbelief and then as an act of faith, receive the elements. Because let's choose to live in Christ today and to appropriate his grace to our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We don't have words to express how, how much your grace changes everything in our lives. Your grace towards us to die on a cross for our sins so that we could be set free from guilt and shame, that we could live into this life that we get to enjoy with you, that we can even come here in community and worship and hear your word and be profoundly moved in our hearts. Lord, we thank you for your grace. And we know that we continue to hold on in our own hearts to things that we deem unforgivable. We think surely you couldn't wipe the slate clean on that thing. But your death was enough. You are God. And we praise and thank you and ask that you would help us to believe in the deepest parts of our soul that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so remind us again, Help us to take a step of faith 
and receive your grace this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.